The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, we are in 1 Corinthians. We, we took a break for the, the summer, and now we are resuming, and we enter into a really interesting passage. So we'll start reading at verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority, or just literally just have authority on her head, Because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is a woman independent of man, nor is a man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Amen. Now, I'm just going to tell you that uh, we're entering into a new section in, in 1 Corinthians. And the new section uh, concerns worship in the church. Chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 all have as a broad subject worship in the church. In fact, Calvin um, says in his own way that Paul is instructing what decorum ought to be observed in the sacred assemblies talking about how they are to conduct themselves. And the very first section, chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, deal with men and women in worship. Then Paul moves 11, 17 to 34 to the Lord's Supper with corrections, the institution of it, and the preparation for it. Really, one of the most remarkable passages on the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. Uh, He moves to chapter 12, spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, deals with the unity of the body and deals with the use, proper use of the gifts of the Spirit in the body. And then chapter 13, he gives us the love chapter, which of course is intended to be put on a plaque and hung in your kitchen. No, chapter 13, actually, so here's, here's, here's a news flash for you. 1 Corinthians 13 comes between chapters 12 and 14, which means that what Paul's doing is not giving us, you know, uh, plaque-worthy little sayings about love. What he's doing is he's actually forcing with the Corinthians the idea that love has to be the motivation for the use of spiritual gifts. In other words, don't detach 1 Corinthians 13 from 12 and 14. Um, I've never done this, but I felt like doing it. it, We don't have a lot of people request 1 Corinthians 13 be read at a wedding, but um, I always feel when it is requested that I should suggest that we read 12 and 14 as well. 
Then, chapter 14, tongues and prophecy and order in the church. All right? Now, if, if those subjects are not interesting to you, it's probably because you're lacking a pulse. I mean, think about it. Head coverings, because of the angels, men and women, Lord's Supper, people dying because they are not taking the Lord's Supper correctly. Do you want to hear about that? Um, and then, of course, spiritual gifts, which is the big rage of today. But what Paul's doing in each one of these sections is he is addressing abuses in the Corinthian assembly. Now, I'm probably going to say this a number of more times, but uh, if that larger context was kept in mind, we probably would not have as much of the charismatic chaos that we have. Paul's trying to correct abuses. Okay? He's not actually giving a blueprint to uh, how to be uh, crazier. So Paul deals with the abuses beginning with male and female roles. And we're not going to get to that tonight. And for that, I thank God. Um, <laughs> He's going to deal with the abuse of the Lord's Supper. We just went over this in, in Greek class yesterday. The, the way that the Corinthians were abusing the supper boggles the mind. Those who were the haves, the wealthy, showing up early, eating all the food and getting drunk by the time the have-nots finally got there. It's just absolutely astonishing. And so Paul's going to deal with the abuses of the Lord's Supper, especially the treatment of the poor. He's also going to deal with abuses of the gifts of the Spirit. And um, this section that we're going to start in tonight, 2 through 16, is filled with exegetical difficulties. Almost every commentator will, will make a major point of, of how challenging 2 to 16 really is. I mean, even just reading it, you begin to see these incredible exegetical challenges. And the challenges basically fall under three categories. And so think about this as we proceed next week into, um, into the text. But first of all, there's just the trying to follow the logic of the argument as a whole. Okay? Did anybody kind of feel as I was reading through the text and you're following along, like, what exactly is his point here, right? Uh, he's making an argument, and it was abundantly clear to him what his argument was. But it is not exactly as clear to us and in fact, there are just about as many views on this passage as there are commentators. Okay? Now, there is a traditional view, which is the view that I would hold to, but it is uh, the, the, trying to trace the argument of this text is very hard. But the second thing that makes it incredibly challenging is the uncertainty about the use of crucial terms in the text. So, did anybody notice any crucial terms in the text? Head. Okay, did anybody notice? I think uh, the word head, kephale, is used like nine times in these verses. Okay, And um, so, is it really absolutely clear exactly what Paul is talking about every time he uses the word head? The answer is no. Any other Crucial terms in the text that kind of jump out, and you're like, I wonder what that means. Uh, yeah, but I, I think that the reason that becomes uh, a challenge to understand is because you're trying to figure out what is actually the disgrace, right? What is the disgrace? Okay. Other words in there. What's that? Okay, covering... Cover, yeah. By the way, if you automatically think you know what that means, you just hold your exegetical horses. Okay? Any, uh, so covering, cover, 
Glory, yeah, right, absolutely. Glory is one of the most peculiar things in there. Uh, you said hair, yes, hair. Hair plays a major role in this passage for men and women, okay? And now, if you're lacking hair, it does not mean this does not apply to you, okay? I know, Arnie thought he was totally off the hook. <laughs> Jeff. Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that tonight, but that's that's a big one actually. Bob. Yes. Yes, both of those, by the way, the minute Paul says because of the angels, everybody should say, "What?" <laughs> right? I mean, that's a really odd statement, but then his use of the term nature is also not as clear as we might think, all right? Now, there are some other words in the text that actually are, are challenging because you not only have uh, covering, but you also have um, wraparound. Now, you don't see that in your English text, but there's two different words that's used. Uh, one is a covering, and the other is something that wraps around you. So the question is, what, what's the distinction? How about shaved? Now, you know what shaved means, but did you follow that argument? She might as well just shave her head. This is, this is odd stuff, all right? And so you have all of these, you have a lot of these crucial terms, and they are incredibly challenging to try to expound. And then, of course, probably the biggest challenge is uncertainty about the prevailing customs that Paul's dealing with. Because you would have, you would have um, cultural or social customs that Paul's dealing with, but then there would also be religious customs that Paul is dealing with. And what is uncertain to commentators and New Testament scholars is the the exact context that makes sense out of Paul's argument. In other words, I mean, frankly, we don't know enough about what was going on at Corinth for this argument to be crystal clear, okay? So this is going to be a lot of fun, I'm sure, but it is incredibly difficult, all right? So, if you remember on Wednesdays, Lord help, you know, help Brian as he tries to, you know, wrap his hair around this, okay? All right, so the passage, the passage falls into, uh, I was going to say three, but really it's four sections. And the first section is just verse two, okay? Verse two serves as the transition from Paul's last argument to now this argument, all right? So verse 2 stands as a transition. Then you have uh, 3 through 6, and there's the introduction of, of the headship of God, the headship of Christ, and the headship of man, all right? And then it is because of that, that theological foundation, that he starts talking about head coverings while praying and prophesying, all right? The second major section starts in verse 7 and goes 7 to 12, and then uh, he wraps it up in 13 to 16. And so uh, this is is really uh, probably um, one of the most difficult passages in Paul. I I don't know that I, I can think of another one that would surpass it as far as difficulty in interpretation. And so, uh, you know, as we go through the Bible in consecutive exposition, there's no way to say, you know what, don't know what it means, so let's skip it. All right? Got to dig into it. All right? Now, <clears throat> I'm looking at the text this morning, and, and uh, we go through 1 Corinthians in our uh, Greek class on Tuesday, and so it was probably, uh, maybe, I, I forget now, but a while back that we started chapter 11, right? And verse 2 
stands out. All right? Now, you might think that I had ulterior motive and just didn't want to get into head coverings tonight, and uh, there may be a partial truth to that, but verse 2 stands out. In fact, it stood out when we covered it in Greek class. It stood out as I've gone through and worked through the text, and it's just one of those passages that, that in a sense, sort of demand a little bit more attention, and so... Uh, tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at verse 2, okay? And I think that there are some real practical things that we can take away from verse 2. So verse 2 reads again, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold, uh, hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, does, does that sound strange to you? All you have to do is think about who he's talking about. This is what makes it so peculiar. So he says, I praise you. Well, we're going to come back to that in in a moment, but let's let's just register how unusual that sounds. Because the word praise means to admire, to approve, and also to praise in the sense of what you do to God, right? Romans 15, 11, this word is used as Paul quotes the Psalms on the Gentiles praising God. So here's a word that seems, uh, let's just say, out of place. It's actually funny to see the, uh, start to get, get into the new section in the commentators because all of them make the point, so this is the way Fee puts it, One is scarcely prepared for any words of praise. Remember, the letter to the Corinthians is not the letter to the Philippians. Right? You taught through Philippians, right? Paul is filled with comfort and encouragement and warm-heartedness and... Now, 1 Corinthians isn't as harsh as Galatians, but Paul is, is, is not happy with them. Think about how many things that he's already said since we've started this that reflects um, his correction and his rebukes, right? In fact, what is... Um, What is going to be interesting is you take this phrase, now I praise you, and then compare it to what he says in verses 17 and 22, which is, I do not praise you. In this, I do not praise you, right? So, all of a sudden, Paul kind of springs this on us, and it's a little surprising, And here's why he praises them. Because you remember me in everything. That also should sound a little surprising. (laughs) These, These Corinthians, I mean, give me some characteristics of these Corinthians that you've already seen as we've gone through. There should be one that just stands head and shoulders above everything else. Okay, they're divisive. They're proud. They're carnal. What's that? Oh, yeah, there, it, there's, there's toleration of immorality. And here's Paul, and he says, I praise you because you remember me in everything. Now, this phrase is, um, is debated, of course. Uh, some say that because you remember me in everything, Paul is saying, Uh, you hold fond memories of me in your heart. Okay? Um, I don't think that's probably what Paul has in mind. Um, uh, Others, um, Paul was certain of the Corinthians' prayers for him. Don't think that's what he's talking about either. That may be true. Uh, Maybe uh, the idea was is that some send a check in the mail to him once in a while, and I'm thankful that you remember me. I don't think that's it either. In the context... What Paul's talking about is 
a specific reference to them remembering his instruction and his teaching to them. You remember me in all things. In other words, I think the idea is is that you remember my instruction in all things. Now, even that's a stretch. And so when Paul says, I praise you, you remember me in all things. You remember what I taught you. You remember how I instructed you. You remember how I imitated Christ so that you could imitate me. Then he says very specifically in the next section, notice this, and I think this is an explanation of that first clause, and you hold firmly to the traditions which I delivered to you. So let me just say that the three parts of this, I praise you because you remember me in everything and because you hold fast to the traditions which I delivered, all three of those things seem incredibly out of place to a congregation that was incredibly rebellious, incredibly proud, incredibly carnal, incredibly tolerant of the worst kinds of immorality, um, had problems with being uh, super spiritual people to the degree that, that some of them didn't even think they needed to listen to Paul anymore, and yet he could turn around and say, I praise you. Now, when he says, I praise you because you hold fast the traditions which I delivered to you, you have to understand that he uses, he uses two words here in, in verse 2. And that is traditions and delivered. Those two words are technical terms that go back to Jewish tradition, to rabbinic teaching, meaning the oral transmission of religious instruction. So Paul says... You hold fast the traditions which I delivered to you. Now, does Paul talk about tradition? Yeah. In fact, um, just take a look at these, these texts because they're important. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay. How many of you, don't, don't raise your hand, but how many of you kind of think in terms of, so Christianity, your faith, and you think in terms sort of uh, that are anti-tradition, right? Non-tradition, um, right? That, that, that's kind of a big thing, by the way, for evangelicals as a, as a whole, right? Um, is that we don't hold to traditions. Okay? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue that actually there are apostolic traditions that need to be received. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So, the tradition is delivered in two ways, according to Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians. Either the oral instruction that I gave you when I was with you, or letters that I've written to you in which I've instructed you. Okay? Now, you, you, right away you should see that the hang-up is, is with us and the word tradition. Paul very clearly has a positive view of tradition. It's something that is delivered over. It's something that's handed over. It's something that's passed down, right? So whatever that is for Paul, Paul has a positive view of it. We think of tradition and we think of, of things that are, let's say, more cultural-type traditions. And we don't like being bound by traditions, right? So, for instance, we're not... Um, we would not be classified as a um, liturgical church. And of course, in a liturgical church, there are traditions, right? So what would those traditions be? 
the reciting of the Lord's Prayer, the reciting of the Apostles' Creed, or, you know, standing or kneeling, or, right? I mean, you think of all of those things. And so we kind of pride ourselves, at least we're not bound by tradition, really. Well, we have traditions too, right? Name one. Six ninety one, no six ninety two, <laughs> no six ninety one, yeah. So that's that. By the way, that's become part of our liturgy, actually, right? The tradition of our services. Okay, um, so don't be fooled. So if you're like a big like anti tradition person, you've got traditions. Okay, everybody does. But Paul's talking about something that is incredibly positive. He says in chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So the tradition that Paul's talking about that they received is obviously, at least in part, an ethical standard by which Christians are supposed to live, right? But that verse wouldn't make any sense unless Paul was, had some sort of ethical standard in view in the tradition, right? Well, look at uh, Romans chapter 6. Now, this one is not... It's clear to us because of the way our translations do this. Romans 6.17, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Okay? Now, <clears throat> the language of tradition is in this text. The NIV says um, that form of teaching which claimed your allegiance. Okay. I think ESV does the same thing that NAS does, right, to which you were committed. Actually, this word is simply the passive voice of paradidomy, which is part of our tradition language. Okay. So the idea is, you, you could translate it this way. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which was passed down to you, which was delivered to you, which was handed over to you. So the form of teaching is, another way to say that would be, the tradition which was handed over to to you. Um, by the way, we know about this um, language from Paul. We read it all the time. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received. Okay? So Paul preached it, they received it. Now we think in terms of you know, like personal faith or conversion, something. That's true, but Paul's saying, in preaching it, I handed it over to you, you received it, in which you also stand, by which also you're saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, here it is. For I delivered, that's our language, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is, this is the tradition language. Paul receives it. Paul hands it over. The ones that he hands it over to receive it. All right? So in a sense, this, this starts to help us clarify some things. The content of the gospel is apostolic tradition. It's what was received and what was handed over. Right now, let me make one historical observation because some of you might be having 
hides right now. All this. So this very issue of tradition is what divides us from the Roman Catholic Church. Did you know that? Is this very issue. We would say that all apostolic tradition necessary for faith and life is in the Scriptures. Hence, sola scriptura is an affirmation that all necessary apostolic tradition for faith and life has been preserved for us in the Scriptures. All right? So, is apostolic tradition important? And the answer is, it is vital for faith and life. And that apostolic tradition, which you are required to receive, has been inscripturated for you in the canon of Holy Scripture. Rome says that you have Scripture and tradition. And the and tradition is stuff that's not in the Bible. And so they would argue that the apostolic tradition is actually preserved and passed down through the traditions of the church. And let's say extra-biblical traditions are seen to have the same weight and authority as the Bible. Now, if you want, you know, a little bit of Reformation humor, read Calvin on his comments when he gets to the word tradition. And he will talk about how the papists pervert this word to mean all of their futile superstitions and ceremonies. So what, how, do these, how do these traditions get, get uh, in a sense, inculcated into the life of the church? It's just simple. Just say, this is the way it's always been. We got this from the apostles. How did you get that from the apostles? You know what I know for sure we got from the apostles? The Bible. <laughs> the New Testament. That's what I'm sure we got from the apostles. They think we got stuff from the apostles that gets handed down through the through the the uh, winding road of church tradition. So, tradition is not a bad word. It is the apostolic deposit. It is the content that is necessary for us to know regarding the gospel and how to live. All right? By the way, included in that tradition would not only be the gospel and how to live, but also the way in which the church is to conduct herself. For I delivered to you that which I also received. I left out one passage on deliver and receive. For I delivered to you that which I also received, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread the very institution of the Lord's Supper and how we observe it is apostolic tradition and scripturated for us in God's holy word. So, how does Paul actually know this, that they're holding fast to the tradition? Well, probably, this is is my best guess, How did he know about the divisions? Corinthian quiz. How did Paul know about the divisions? 
not a letter. Chloe's people, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He knew he had an oral report from Chloe's people. Paul, you would not believe what's going on in Corinth. All right? Now, I imagine that as Paul inquired, they probably said some things that were... So maybe this is, this is just... Okay, so take this for what it's, for what it's worth. So maybe... Paul says, are are they observing the Lord's Supper? Yes. Oh, they're observing the Lord's Supper. That's good. Well, not exactly, Paul. (laughs) Right? So you could imagine maybe how this oral report uh, went. And so here's, here's the thing, is that this verse, praising them for keeping instruction, seems to just fly in the face of the whole letter and especially what follows. Where Paul will emphatically say twice, I don't praise you. So this is, this is what we have to ask ourselves. So what, what is Paul actually saying here? What is he doing? Right? Why would he say this to the Corinthians? Okay. Um, one possibility, he's being sarcastic. Now, let me just say, for those of you who are too sanctimonious to ever use any sanctified sarcasm, that Paul was not above using sarcasm. I had a man tell me one time, I raised my children and we never used sarcasm ever. And I'm thinking, how totally unpauline. A little bit of sarcasm is good for you. All right, it, it depends. Don't 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 go taking this, you know, too far. But um, so Paul's not above sarcasm. But here's the thing: I don't think he's being sarcastic here. I don't think he's going, "Oh, I praise you, ha ha," because you remember me in everything. Not <laughs> right. I don't think he's being sarcastic. So the question is, well, what is he doing? Now, there is a mild suggestion by some commentators, and that is that, that very phrase, all things, may be actually something that the Corinthians themselves said to Paul. Remember, they write to him asking him questions. Okay? Now, they're not writing him tattling on themselves, but they write to him questions, and it could be that 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 phrase, that all things, could be a, um, a, 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 the way that they referred. Paul, we're remembering you in all things, and Paul picks up on that, all right? Of course, sort of using their terminology, okay? So, you read the letter and you find out there's a lot of areas where praise is not given and where praise is clearly not in order, But this is what I take Paul to be doing in verse 2. I take Paul to be affirming what he can before he takes them to the woodshed. He affirms what he can. So maybe, maybe they're following the traditions, they're praying, they're prophesying, they're observing the Lord's Supper, they're exercising gifts. They're just not doing it right. And maybe Paul is saying, um, you know, I know they're not doing it right, but you know what, I, I, I praise you because you're remembering everything that I taught you and you're holding fast. Okay? Now, notice in your notes, I think that this is an example of coptatio benevolentiae. All right? Now, you may have never heard that before, but it is a very common rhetorical technique advocated earnestly by Cicero that was aimed at trying to capture the goodwill of an audience at the beginning of a speech. Literally, it means earning goodwill. Do we actually see this in the Bible any place? And the answer is yes, we actually see it in a number of places. 
When Paul starts off a letter, by the way, with thanksgiving, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, that's, that's probably an example of this. But we have an even uh, sharper example, and that is in the book of Acts in chapter 24, where, where Paul is about to make his, his case, and he uses all, you know, it is, it is an honor for me to be able to present my case to you, most excellent Felix or Festus or whoever it was. Um, you know, you rule well. You are, your reputation is, what is he doing? Well, you say, oh, he's buttering him up. Well, he, he's actually introducing his speech in a way that he's earning the goodwill so that he'll get an audience. Okay? Now, it's, it's obvious that this could be overdone. And when it's overdone, we have a word for that. Flattery, right? And what does the Bible tell us about flattery? Lots of bad things, okay? I'm sitting in my office, what was it, like 6.15, right? It's like 6.15, and I said, Jason, can you think of any Proverbs off the top of your head that deal with flattery? Because those are not usually the ones we memorize, right? We remember, uh, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. We don't usually remember the, the flattery because we don't, perceive ourselves to be that way. And he's like, nope. But then, thanks to his Logos Bible program, he rattles off about a half a dozen, and guess what? They all talk in one way or another about the Lord bringing judgment on people who will flatter other people. Right? What was the one in Job, right? The, the, yeah, where, where Job's like, uh, you know, I dare not... I dare not flatter somebody else because my maker will, yeah, like remove me from the face of the earth. I mean, so, so flattering people is not good. It's not virtuous. But here, understand, what Paul is doing is there's a sincerity with Paul, but he's seeking the goodwill prior to the words of correction that he's about to give. Now, he's not going to say, um, you know, I, I praise you because you guys are just practically perfect in every way. But what he's doing is he's praising what he can praise and he's affirming what he can affirm. Because he knows that he's about to correct them in a way that is going to explain why some among them are sick, some are weak, and some have even died. So, was Paul direct? Yeah, I think Paul was pretty direct. I don't think he probably had to kind of wonder what Paul was thinking. And in fact, Paul was direct. But even though he was direct, this is something that just stands out. Here's the, 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 the direct apostle. The apostle who's not afraid to correct Simon Peter in public. And what stands out is this incredibly pastoral note. And so here's here's the way that this sort of gelled in my my head today as I was thinking about verse 2 and about why Paul would do this. There is very little virtue or positive effect in just simply blasting somebody. You know we've turned that into a virtue, right? I'm just the kind of person that speaks my mind. Normally what we mean by that is, I'm just the kind of person that has absolutely no filter or common sense, let alone wisdom. It's only a fool that speaks what's on his mind all the time, right? It's only a fool who just, who just tells you like it is. Okay? So we sort, of, we sort of value that. We sort of look at, uh, you know, that sort of uh, machismo as some sort of spiritual virtue. And I look at Paul right here, and I'm thinking, he could have just simply just launched in, in fact... What he's going to say in 2, 
through uh, th- verse 16 is, is going to be relatively mild. It's not until he gets to the Lord's Supper that he really, really rebukes them. And so there's little virtue or positive effect in just blasting away. So sometimes we can become a little unbalanced in this area and think that it's just wrong to praise or commend someone who is not God. I had a guy recently tell me, you know, when I raised my kids, I never told them I was proud of them. Okay? And of course, that's, by the way, that's, that's, an, that's an overly simplistic way to think about the notion of pride. Because Paul was proud of the Thessalonians. They were his joy, his glory, his crown. So we can, be, we can be unbalanced in this whole area. So let me just do this pretty quickly because I took too much time in the front part. First of all, God commends and praises his people. Okay. Where? Well, how about, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Right? Or how about, woman, your faith is remarkable. Go in peace. By the way, that was the Syrophoenician woman, Matthew 15. What about to um, Luke 7, Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion, marvels. And this is what he says to him. I've not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. He praises, he commends him. Okay? So the idea is God himself is a God who commends. God is one who actually praises his people. Number two, when we affirm something in someone, if we have a God-centered perspective, we realize that what is praiseworthy comes from God. Okay. So if, if, if we are the kind of people who commend others, who affirm others, who praise others, and we do it from a God-centered perspective, what we're doing is we're commending and praising and affirming that which finds its origin in God. So Sam Crabtree wrote a really great little book called Practicing Affirmation, says, all praiseworthy qualities and characteristics originate with him. And they are derived from him. And they mimic him in one way or another. Number three, affirmation and praise is encouraging and refreshing. I don't even need to actually make an argument for that, do I? That's just the way it is. Affirmation and praise is, is, is encouraging and refreshing. So, when we, number four, when we fail to affirm or praise, when we fail to affirm or praise, we may simply be critical, judgmental, and nitpicky. And if we fail to affirm and praise, it will seem as if the only thing we do is criticize. Always correcting, always rebuking. Even as I say that, some of you think, yeah, that was, uh, that was my dad. <laughs> yeah, that's how I was raised. Crabtree says, corrections outweigh affirmations. Okay. Did, did you hear that? Corrections outweigh affirmations. Okay. Every preacher knows this, by the way. You'd have 10 people that come up to you and say, 
that was really a wonderful sermon, Pastor. Thank you. It blessed me. And then you have one that comes up to you and is an old crank and just says, um, that was awful. I hate you. Now, that one outweighs the ten, does it not? Okay. She says, they have greater impact individually. The sting of rebuke outweighs the fresh whiff of a bouquet of affirmations. A person sniffing flowers when a bee stings quickly forgets the flowers, even if the bouquet is very large. If a pattern of corrections is outweighing the affirmations, the sting stays with us, and added corrections are like picking at the scab made by the sting. So when we fail to affirm or praise, our words of correction actually end up being less effective. I mean, just think about that. That, should, that, that also should be axiomatic to a self-evident. That when we fail to affirm or praise, our words of correction end up being less effective. Why? Because that's just always what we're doing. Notice, that's not what Paul does. I praise you. Last, affirmation praise helps us get a hearing and it maintains encouragement in a relationship. So affirmation and praise helps us get a hearing and it maintains encouragement in a relationship. Encouragement in the midst of correction can give hope. If I'm, if I'm correcting somebody, my kid or whoever, and I do it in a context of encouragement, it's that encouragement that gives hope in the midst of the correction. Now, you know what this sometimes looks like, and this is, this is, where, this is where we don't do very well, and that is this kind of affirming and praising, providing encouragement in that context even of correction oftentimes what that requires of us is to make much of a little. You know what I mean? You make much of a little. So it may be a small effort. It may be a small achievement. It may be a very small victory. But the person that's a one that praises and commends, affirms, makes much of even the small things. Does this come naturally? Well, not for most of us. Not for most of us. So I need to think about these things all the time. So... How big of a lesson is this for us? Well, if you have children, just parents, just simply ask yourself, do I praise, commend, and affirm whenever and wherever I can? The correction's there, the rebuke is there, but are those things couched in the context of, of affirmation. Do you hear 1 Corinthians 11 too? And it just sort of resonates. Yeah, it sounds weird because the Corinthians were so crummy, but it just sort of reflects Paul's heart of just being kind and affirming where he could before he took out the paddle. Right? Just think about it with your kids. I, I will tell you, having... Grown children, especially with my boys, I should have commended them and praised them far more than I did. It's a failure of mine. I always want to make sure they were doing everything right and listening to what I said and following my instructions and, and acknowledging that, that God had given them a dad who was the fount of all human wisdom. Didn't commend them nearly enough. I regret that. Well, there are other people that you're supposed to commend and affirm 
How about, um, let's say your spouse. You go, okay, kids, one thing, but spouses, you're, you know, you're really crossing a boundary here. I wonder, and, 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 and it works both ways, okay? There is something in us that resonates, and I don't think it's just sinful pride, but that resonates with being affirmed by somebody that we love. If the father does it with his children, it's okay that we do it with each other in a way that reflects God's glory. And so husbands and wives are like just notoriously non-affirmers towards each other. And some of you just break the mold and you're the most wonderful affirming people on the planet and you could, you could have taken Stuart Smalley's place on Saturday Night Live. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Self-affirmations, daily self-affirmations, Stuart Smalley. Jason wasn't born yet. Yeah. Some of you are great at it, but most of us aren't. Why not? Praise your spouse. Say, well, it's slim pickings. Look for what you can find and make much out of even little things. Okay? By the way, if you're a critical, nitpicky person, then what you perceive to be little things are probably much bigger than you perceive them to be. Right? What about coworkers? People you work with. Okay. It's okay to tell me that that was a good sermon once in a while. <laughs> I'm teasing. He does. I tell him all the time, right? Yeah. And I mean it. It's not like I'm like, oh, that was a, that's a good sermon. The people you work with, people you work with, just affirming them, praising them where you can. What about the people you go to church with, church members? Let me give you a good place to start. You see somebody doing something that you know they've just volunteered to do. Just say, oh, thank you so much for doing that. Really, I appreciate, appreciate that you do that for us. You know what that does? That sets a, that sets a tone of church life. It sets a tone of family life. Okay. Last area, a little tougher. What about when you're sitting down counseling somebody? Can you look them in the eye and... Find something to affirm before you get to the correction. So if Paul can praise the Corinthians, we can most certainly praise the people around us. Husbands, wives, kids, co-workers, fellow church members. It is befitting that we do so. It finds something in someone that is a reflection of God at work in them. So, we're not men pleasers, but we should be men praisers when we can. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, passage that strikes us so odd, and we pray that you would help us to follow Paul's example here as he follows Christ. We pray that we would be the kind of people who are positive and affirming, who look for good things in people and look for opportunities to say something. Father, we pray for our marriages and our families, and we pray that that praise and affirmation would be just a part of of our lives together. 
We thank you. We look forward to the day when you commend us as good and faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.